0: Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight Fighter? Go flight Control? Tell Go. TNC. Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASC? Go. go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go.
1: Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. This is part two of our episode called The Flag is a One, in which I talked to Mac Evans about the drama in the Mission Operations Center during the Communications Technology Satellite Mission, also known as CTS. If you have not listened to part one, you probably want to go do that, or none of this will make much sense. In part one, Mac and I talked about how important CTS was to Canada and the Canadian Space Program at the time, and then we also started discussing the mission itself. We had reached the point where the satellite had been placed in a geostationary transfer orbit and had separated from the booster. The spacecraft team was starting to prepare the satellite for de-spin and for insertion into its final geostationary orbit. This was all supposed to be routine preparation. No one was expecting any drama. And then... They tried to open the latch valves that would allow the reaction control propellant from the RCS tanks into the lines leading into the RCS jets themselves. This is just a standard preparatory step to using the RCS jets for the D-spin maneuver. But let's pick up the story
2: there. Okay, so this tape that you're going to hear is our first attempt to open the latch valve on tank one. Um, You'll hear this complicated process of sending the command. And then near the end, you'll hear Steve Archer, the RCS manager, declare that we have a major spacecraft failure.
0: Uh, is spacecraft ready to support switching to fill the uh, high thrust engine lines with N2H4. Standby on. Okay. T- thermal? Thermal is ready. Next events, Roger. RCS? Roger. ACS? Ready to go. Systems? Uh, ready. Have you sent the command to open latching of one? Uh, that's affirmatively sent it. Roger, we have uh, seen a pressure change. Uh, we're checking that right now. Mike, not change state. Roger, we don't have a change in state on that flag, uh, but we do have a pressure change. Ottawa, this is AFD and Spacecraft Health. AFD, this is Ottawa and Spacecraft Health. Go. Roger, do you people show latch valve one open? No, we don't.
2: Roger. Uh, this is a major uh, problem with the uh, spacecraft at this time. I think you can hear from the tone of Steve's voice there at the end that they were rather disappointed.
1: Yes. So, um, first of all, what had you expected? But the other thing is, is I think we we need to sensitise people to just how little data you're working with to try and understand what's going on, as you put it. Unlike a, a full graphical user interface with, with uh, you know megabits of data downloaded every minute or every second, that was not your reality in 1976,
2: right? That's correct. And so we had the telemetry from the spacecraft that in, for this subsystem showed the temperature and pressures of the tanks. Yes, and there was a flag that would turn from a zero. Right. To a one. So we had somebody, Steve Archer, watching this one bit. Was it going to go <laughs> from zero to a one?
1: Right. Which his whole his to... whole world was one bit wide at that point. And 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 those are being updated how often?
2: So that was being offered up, updated once per second.
1: <laughs> one baud. Okay.
2: So we were sending a 50 millisecond command and we had a once per second telemetry, telemetry system. So it's possible things happened that we
1: didn't see. Right. And that that's why he verifies they don't see it at Goddard. And he says to Ottawa, do you see it? In, in case there's some
2: discrepancy between the two systems, right? That, that's correct. That's exactly what I did. It was to check in Ottawa. Um, so we were not expecting any change in the tank pressure. And we were expecting the latch valve flag to go from a zero to a one.
1: Okay, so the pipe that it had that it was going to flow into when you opened the latch valve was not big enough to change the pressure in the tank. It was- no,
2: no, it was it was not not not, not going to be significant. Okay. Um, so when we saw the pressure drop and that there was no change in the latch valve flag, we knew we had a problem, which uh, yeah, Steve yeah. announced at the end. We immediately split into two teams. Um, the spacecraft health team, which was under Harold Rain's direction, remained in the mission control center. Yes, and they were charged with keeping the spacecraft health, health spacecraft healthy. Sure. Well, failure investigation team under my direction moved into a separate room, and we tried to figure out what had happened and what to do next based on those three pieces of information: the pressure, temperature, and the fire. That's all we had.
1: That's all you had. And and that's you know, but this is a process. This is this is mission control in action. I mean, every time I worked in mission control, and there was any kind of anomaly, exactly what you did. Um, you know, one team made sure that you weren't losing ground, and the other team went off and figured out what was the problem and what you were going to do about it. it. It you know, I mean, you can hear it when you listen to like uh, Apollo thirteen. Uh, you know, oh. this is uh, this is just this is a. You know, it's not a normal day in MCC, but it's certainly within the reins of the realm of what, you know, what you do when you work in a control center.
2: Oh, yes, it is. And so we didn't invent this way of operating. Um, we, in fact, had quite a bit of ground simulation on this, uh, of the satellite. So the, the team for which we had thrown in malfunctions and stuff. So our team was well trained and I think operated very, very well. They were well trained in. Non-standard operations, uh, which all come at you. So, the, the the I had as as the mission director, I had no qualms whatsoever with the capability of the spacecraft health team to keep the yeah. satellite right, right, um, and allowed me to focus entirely on trying to figure out um, what do we do.
1: So what what did you do first?
2: Well. It's interesting. Uh, We spent several hours of deliberation uh, with the manufacturer of the RCS system and other experts on the detailed spacecraft design. Um, And after a lot of (laughs) deliberation, we decided to send the last valve open command a second time, which is a bit contrary to logic. It's a bit like Einstein said, you know, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Sure. Sure. But but with you know with the frequency
1: of the data and the short pulse, I mean, you know, you, you kind of want to try it again, see if you if something happens that you missed the first time, I guess.
2: That's exactly right. So we uh with the command of fifty milliseconds and a telemetry system that samples over one only once a second. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were looking to see if we'd miss something. Um so this next tape, um Gives you the recording of what happened when we set the second latch valve command.
0: Yes, one this is FC on procedures.
2: Right. Are we
0: ready to resend the latch valve command two four two? Roger, we are ready. Send command two four two. Latch valve one open. Transmit. Command verified. Command verified. Execute. We have a zero reading on the pressure transducer on the west side, and no change in state. The pressure went to zero. Do you want to uh, send any other commands to us, yes? Negative, we don't want to send any commands. Roger, understand.
1: That wasn't good.
2: That wasn't good. (laughs) Um, So, this time the pressure went to zero, and there was no flag. So... Uh, We'd made things presumably worse. What's not on the tape yeah. is a report by the NASA orbital dynamics team Yes, that around the time that we sent this command, the orbit of the satellite changed. Yeah. So, you know, what goes through your mind? You think, okay, I sent this command. The pressure of the tank goes to zero. Yes, uh, That could indicate that maybe the tank has blown up and the gas emanating from the tank has created a stream which has altered the orbit of course so the statement from the orbital dynamics team really was a great concern to um sure. to, uh, and, yeah. and it, it if it was true then the mission was over wow. um okay but subsequently um uh, very quickly actually um uh, within maybe an hour or so they They came back to us and said, "No, that was an erroneous uh, conclusion from their data." And and so we breathed a sigh of relief, saying, "Yeah, really,
1: everybody check their heart medications." Okay, Um, so so with that news, though, you're still you're stuck in a geostationary transfer orbit while all of this is going on, right? That's correct. And I mean, now is that a stable orbit? That you know, can you stay there kind of forever while you troubleshoot this problem, or? Or, you know, how long do you have to fix this?
2: Well, there really were no limitations on how long the satellite could stay in this transfer orbit. Um, It was thermally stable. We had enough power. Right. Um, The the concern was that there's atmospheric drag on the satellite during the perigee. Yeah, okay. And that this would alter the orbit, you know, sufficiently to make it. You know, if we stayed there long enough, impossible to proceed. We would just not have the right orbit. Wouldn't wouldn't be able to get back to geostation. Uh, no. So for you know, during our pre-flight planning, we had indicated that we could easily last 10 orbits or which would be about five days. And you're half a day into that five now? We were by this time, um, yeah, we're probably a day, day into our five day, day and a half into our five, five days.
1: So the clock is ticking. Um, but at least you know how long you have, right? And and I mean, again, this is, to me, this is absolutely typical of mission control. I've said it before. I mean, the art and science of mission control is not doing anything until you have to, and then knowing what you need to do when the time comes. So, um, you know, this seems like it was uh, absolutely it's the way you troubleshoot a problem. You know what the deadline is. Let's keep looking for stuff until we run out of time, and then we're going to do whatever we've decided is the best course of action at that point. So. So um, so eventually you decided to try Latch Valve 2. Um, is that because you were feeling particularly lucky? Uh, or was there something else you, you thought you might get from there?
2: Well, we didn't want to touch the tank one, last Valve 1. No! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, you know, for, I think very quickly came to say, okay, well, let's try latch, the second tank and the second Latch Valve. Um, th- these two tanks uh, were cross-trapped, so if you had one open, it would flow fuel to all thrusters. So we, if with, with just one tank, uh, we would have could have completed the mission. It would have been a shortened mission, but it would we would have had time. So we said, okay, let's try opening lash valve two, and we actually tried this twice. What you're going to hear now is the first time. And the first time we did it, nothing happened. No changes in the pressure no flags went up right so we went to the there are two command systems uh, electronics on board the satellite so we went to the backup command system right and then this this, the uh, command again to last valve two and again nothing happened so with two attempts on last valve two we got no change in state
1: right okay well let's listen to the tape
2: okay so this is the first time on last valve two are we now ready to go with command
0: 673? Roger. SOM, yes, so when are you ready? Uh, ready. Send so command 673, lights valve 2 open. Transmit. Sending mark 673. Command verified. Command verified. Execute. Command verified. Transmit execute. Mark. 673
2: up No change three. in flight. No pressure change. So, um I guess. That's basically good news. We did yeah, well. The machine is
1: sounding pretty well oiled in that tape. Uh, uh, I, I have to admit, uh, you're you're moving through that whole complicated sequence pretty quickly. Uh, but still, well, you know, good news or not good news. I mean, it, it it wasn't you know whatever was wrong with latch valve one is wrong with latch valve two. But at least um, you didn't you didn't lose the sensor, so you had no concern that you'd actually damage something by trying to open the valve.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um, So, we reconvened the failure investigation team, including the manufacturer, to go over what we knew. Again, all we had were these three pieces of information from each of the tanks and latch valves. Right. And um, in that process, we discovered, and this is a thing I hate to admit, but we discovered that we were actually operating the spacecraft slightly different than we had tested it on the ground.
1: Because it wasn't on the ground. Anymore. But
2: no. Um, but in ground testing, the pipes that go from the latch valve to these thrusters, the sixteen yes. thrusters, they were all filled with air. Of course. Um, but in space these pipes were evacuated to outer space. So there was no pressure in these. Right, because the,
1: you wouldn't fly them with air in them because they'd freeze yeah. or, you know, precipitate. Yeah. yeah, so you'd evacuate them before launch. Okay. So You
2: got to have, well, you have to, out, you, you go through an outgassing process with satellites. And so that that was part of the process. So we had empty, we had empty pipes, nothing. Right. Which was what in, on the ground tests we had pipes that were filled with air. Okay. So a theory was, we started to generate a theory that maybe we were suffering from water hammer effect. Okay. And the theory suggests that the evacuated pipes allowed the fuel to flow out more rapidly in space than was on the case in the ground. This rapid flow actually prevented the valve from opening all the way, and in fact, forced it shut, bang, causing a water hammer effect.
1: And if this it's, was the case- the valve isn't, it's not a, like a flap that opens. It's actually like something that's in the middle of the pipe that rotates. That's so there's yeah. pressure on both sides of it. So yeah. if it goes too fast, it can slam itself shut.
2: That's correct. Yep. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, this would be um, similar to, you know, you, everybody has done this at home, suddenly shutting off the tap in their in their home and causing the pipes to rattle. That's the water hammer effect. So this, if this was the case, then then the, the shock wave, which is the water hammer effect, would have reflected back from the last valve into the tank one, and wiped out the temperature and pressure sensors that were in the tank. So that's a, a plausible explanation. Right.
1: That's why you lost the sensors in tank one was the water hammer. Okay. So, but but the root cause of the problem was that the fuel flow was just too fast. And and you, you said open the valve and it got partially open. And then because you weren't holding it open, it, it slammed shut again before it had a chance to open all the way and latch.
2: That's correct. And so what do we do with this? Um, so we came up with a proposed solution to send, to execute the last valve open command for a longer period than the 50 milliseconds. Right. right. And with the idea that this longer pulse would overcome the force of the fast flowing fluid. Eventually it would fill the pipes and it would slow down and the valve would be able to latch open. So that was the theory. We had nothing to prove that that would be the case, (laughs) but it was our mail our hail Mary.
1: Well, but you know, in some ways it it sounds like a hail Mary, but you know, and this is the thing that I think is so interesting about being a Terranaut is that, Literally, you got a bunch of guys who have spent, you know, somewhere between five and ten years with this satellite, uh, designing it, um, working with it, testing it. I mean, they they know this thing as well as they know the backs of their hands. Probably some of them know it better than their kids' faces at this point. Um, You know, they have a tiny little bit of data from the number of tests you've done, and they have to sit essentially in the darkened room and in their mind try and understand what their satellite is doing up there on orbit including figuring out, okay, but now we're in vacuum. Um, how's, and the temperature's different. And how's that all affecting, you know, our, our piece of machinery? That's really, you know, that's being a Terranaut. That's going to space while you're staying on the ground, right? Yep.
2: And we had, you know, I think we had tremendous support from everybody, including the manufacturer, to work our, our way around here. Yep. Yeah.
1: In retrospect, it sounds simple, but uh, to me... It's a pretty impressive feat of engineering to be able to take the tiny little bit of data that you have and visualize what were the possible problems and come up with with a uh, uh, you know something that made sense and that the data all fit.
2: Yeah, and uh, so anyways, we we this one we hummed and hawed over for at least a day. Sure. Because um, we hadn't tested the valve <laughs> for the no. three second pulses, and so we got the manufacturer to do some tests on on some similar valves that they had and to see whether or not these longer pulses would actually burn the the lots of the solenoid out on the lots valve Um, and so they did those tests and came back and said well you know (laughs) it's outside of the warranty but Okay um, hey, yeah uh,
1: you're you're voiding your warranty. Okay, thanks, but but
2: uh they felt it would be safe to send something up to at least as long as 3 seconds.
1: And and you know this again this to me just sounds like a typical mission control scenario. First you have to visualize what the problem is, then you have to figure out if you're going to break anything by implementing the fix. I mean in some ways it's no different than than those guys on Apollo who figured out how to build the adapter for the the lithium oxide canisters to put the square peg in the triangular hole or whatever it was you know they sit there in the room full of the stuff that's on the capsule build something test it make sure it works and then they go tell the crew what to do i mean you know this is just a microcosm of that to me
2: yeah no you're right
1: absolutely so if this worked what did you expect to see
2: well we decided we would send this command for three seconds and if using on last valve two, because we're going to touch last valve one, well, Um, so if our theory was correct, we would see the last valve flag go from a zero to a one. Yes, and there would be no change in the pressure. Yeah, and that's what we were hoping would happen. So this next,
1: and so insert drum roll and roll tape.
2: So this tape shows us the uh, what was going on when we sent that command three-second command. Okay, load command 273, transmit.
0: Transmitting mark 273. Command up leading. Command verified. execute for three seconds. Uh, this will be a continuous execute command. Press the whole PBI. Hold PBI, pressed. Execute on your, your mark for less than three seconds. So one. 22 is one. One. Ah. 273 up for Uh, there's been no pressure drop, and the uh,
2: flag is
1: one. There was great rejoicing.
0: There
2: was. You heard it in the room. Um, you know, the, the release in the room was palpable. Um, this whole- i am
1: sure was- you were. I'm sure you were holding your breath for most of the duration of that little—that little, that little um, uh, transmission. It's the longest, attack.
2: longest three seconds in my life. Oh. <laughs>
1: Wow. So so after that it was all kind of anticlimactic, was it? So after that,
2: yeah. And uh, you know, we had we were tired because we had been spending basically twenty-four hours a day trying to solve During this. The work. um but anyways, uh as a result of that, we then opened up last valve one and it worked fine. Uh, the latch, the flag came up, um, pressure and temperature never came back, but the flag came up. So we were convinced that we had solved the problem and the mission was saved. Yeah. So we proceeded to successfully reorient the spinning axis of the satellite, and we fired the apogee motor on. I'm th- not quite sure, but I think around the tenth apogee, which means we had done it within the specified time.
1: And 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 you know, the rest, as they say, is history. CTS went on to basically achieve all of its mission objectives. Right. We did
2: um, the satellite operated for longer than its two year design life. Um, we demonstrated direct to home broadcast TV to one meter terminals. Um, we this capability was demonstrated not only in Canada and the United States, but we had cooperative use projects with Peru, wow. Papua New Guinea, and Australia. And uh, we did meet every one of the objectives. Wow. Of the and, and the
1: legacy. You know, is still with us today. I mean, when we look at modern communication satellites, you know, there there are a lot. There's a lot of improvements in the last uh, 50 years, but they still basically look like the the basic layout that was pioneered on CTS. Right.
2: That's true. Um, You know, you think about it. um, the 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 digital technology has meant you don't have to have 200 watt tubes. So that, when we illustrated that, that's not needed in future satellites. But the process of three-axis stabilization, the 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 concept of solar panels facing the sun while the body of the satellite faces the earth, um all of that uh, were technologies that were proven out. And and um uh, and now, you know, I mean all of these satellites that are using uh, that are using the director home broadcasting are all using the 12, 14 gigahertz band, and which we're still I using heard.
1: the same band. Interesting. Um so so that was quite uh, an introduction to MCC as your first flight as flight director.
2: Yeah, uh, in fact, you know, over time people always ask me, you know, what was the best part of your career? Sure. And to me, being mission director, having gone through this exercise, um, and running aside, I was kept on being mission director for the operations first, then I moved on. But uh, it was the was really the the, the most satisfying and. Uh, an interesting job i ever had so
1: you know like i said it it i i feel perfectly at home in that discussion it it feels like a sit you know situations that i not anywhere near as serious or sort of as much of a high wire act i don't think but but it, it sounded very much like like a, a procedure that i would have been familiar with and and this is why you know this is what this podcast is about is that that process of being on the ground but having to be in space with your satellite to essentially rescue it. Um, what what did you learn about that process in, in this uh, you know in this instance?
2: Um, first of all, I, I learned um, really the importance of well-trained personnel. I mean, are the the people on. Um, on the satellite side were extremely well-trained and had experience and kept the satellite alive while we figured things out. Yeah. Um, The the process of splitting us up into one group that looked after the satellite and one group that did the fault analysis and and procedure development um, worked very well and so it separated those two functions, got them out of each other's hair One team stayed in the Mission Control Center, the other went offline.
1: Right, right.
2: Um, uh, Your point earlier that you made about take as much time as you have with no more um, was always in the back of our minds. Um, Looking at all options, uh, you try, you know, you say, okay, there's a theory that could be possible. Then you look at something else and say, that could be possible. So you have to put all this stuff on the table. And then, as objectively as you can, analyze it. Yes. And pick pick the one that you you think is most probable, and do whatever testing you can on whatever you have left on the ground. Yeah. To uh, verify your theory, and then once you've decided, go for it.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's being a pteranod in a nutshell, um, right there. I think, and that's why I was so excited when you said you had the tapes and you wanted to talk about this. It's not. You know, it's not high high profile, like One Small Step for Man, um, you know, or, or like Houston, we have a problem, you know, the things we all remember. But but it's still the same thing. And and that's why, um, you know, that's what this podcast is about, is that there are lots and lots of people who do this job, who go to space every day, even if they do it sitting at their computers. Um, but it still is a very, you know, it's a different profession than just about any other. And, and I'm really glad that you... We're able to share that with us today, and then we got to explore it a little bit. I think it's uh, it's a fascinating example of uh, what it's like to be a Terranaut. So thanks for being on Terranauts today,
2: Mac. It's been my great pleasure, Ian. Thank you. All right.
1: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of Terranauts. And, in fact, that's pretty much going to do it for the second season of Terranauts. Believe it or not, that is our 39th episode of this podcast. Next time, we'll have a short episode to wrap up the second season and to look forward to Season 3. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.